Spencer Wells was born in Georgia in 1969. He studied biology, and when he obtained his PhD from Harvard University, he was faced with a decision. Which professional field would he focus his research on? He wasn't very excited by what he found were his options. Most of them included tedious lab work and rummaging in the DNA of flies and worms. As a child, Wells had always been interested in science. He was a big fan of history and an adventurer. What he wanted was a way he could combine his love for genetics, history, and evolution into one package. Luckily for him, a perfect opportunity presented itself. In the 1980s and early 90s, geneticists were studying DNA samples from people around the world. These samples played an important role in a lot of scientific research, from medicine to the study of human evolution. But it's important to note that the majority of these studied DNA samples were taken from European and American people, since these populations were relatively easily accessible to scientists. Other parts of the world, however, were in relative genetic darkness. Parts such as the village I'm standing in now, Sentyab, a remote community in Uzbekistan. Many places like this in Central Asia, in the former Soviet countries of Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan, were relatively difficult for scientists to reach. The lack of advanced infrastructure and language barriers kept researchers away. And as a result, almost no DNA samples were ever taken from local indigenous populations, people whose families had lived in Central Asia for centuries. For Spencer Wells, this was a golden opportunity to promote the science of genetics while satisfying his natural sense of adventure. In 1996, he sent letters to American embassies in the Central Asian countries and asked for their help in finding local scientists who were interested in collecting DNA samples. A while later, he was contacted by Ruslan Ruzabakiev, manager of the Immune System Research Center at the Academy of Science in Uzbekistan. Ruslan invited Wells to visit the center and offered to help with collecting samples from the locals. So, Wells packed a large suitcase, invited a friend who thought it would be interesting to tag along, and left for Tashkent. Their journey was the beginning of a scientific investigation that would shine a new and disturbing light on one of history's most ruthless emperors, Genghis Khan. Khan's Mongol armies were infamous for decimating entire cities and killing millions of male soldiers and civilians. But now, Wells' research could unearth clues about the fate of Khan's female victims as well. Hello and welcome to CM Pod. I'm Kelly O'Loughlin. This episode, The Molecular Clock and The Real Adam and Eve, Part 2. CM Pod is proudly sponsored by Outbrain. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably used Outbrain today. You just didn't realize it until now. Outbrain is the service that recommends which stories to check out next when you're browsing your favorite sites. Didn't know there was a service for that? 
ever wondered why you see the stories that you see on sites like CNN, ESPN and People magazine? It's because Outbrain uses algorithms to figure out what you might like to see next based on your interests and other readers like you. So, the next time you reach the end of a story on your favorite site and you're thinking about what's next, remember, Outbrain thinks of that for you. Outbrain. We could all use a little direction. Visit outbrain.com for more info. Spencer Wells and his friend met Ruslan Ruzabakiev at the Tashkent airport. Two hours and a few shots of vodka later, they were in his research center getting their equipment ready for the expedition. Wells traveled from one village to another, met local leaders, and asked for their assistance in convincing the locals to allow him to draw blood samples. To Wells's amazement, he was welcomed with open arms by the locals. He soon discovered that many of the people he met in those small, isolated villages were eager to learn more about their family's history and the history of their nation. People who live in small communities, as Wells discovered, tend to respect ancient traditions and family heritage, and some of the locals could trace their ancestry up to eight generations back. This attitude, along with the fact that Wells gave free beer to blood donors, well, it was a local variant of beer made from horse milk, this assured the success of his sample collection. A few weeks later, Wells returned to the U.S. and analyzed the samples he'd collected. He soon realized that the 550 DNA samples he collected weren't enough. The area he traveled through was relatively small, and it didn't adequately represent the Uzbek population. He knew that in order to extract meaningful conclusions from the samples, he would need to collect many more. In other words, he'd have to go, once again, on a road trip to the magical scenery, serene villages, and ancient cultures of Central Asia, where he would be forced to drink local alcohol and eat exotic foods. It's not always easy being a scientist. So, Wells returned to his maps and planned a second expedition. This time, however, he needed sponsors, since this journey was going to be more expensive than the first. Remember, we're talking about the 1990s, the early days of the internet. Some companies and organizations were trying to gain some presence on the young World Wide Web. The BBC, for example, agreed to sponsor the expedition in return for Wells writing a journal of his travels on its website. A blog, you could say. Land Rover provided his crew with a jeep, and Virgin Atlantic agreed to fly all the scientific equipment overseas at no cost. So, in 1998, Wells and four other men hopped in a jeep in London and drove all the way to Central Asia. For six months, they traveled to remote villages in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Azerbaijan and collected some 2,000 DNA samples. It was the adventure that Wells had always dreamt of. He met with many local people, drank lots of vodka, and even crashed the car once. I wonder if those last two things are related. Anyways, it turns out, this expedition helped Wells start the career he'd always dreamt of. He later joined the National Geographic Society and led scientific expeditions to Chad, Afghanistan, and more than 100 other countries. The Central Asia expedition was only the first part of Wells' scientific journey. 
While in Uzbekistan, an Italian scientist named Tatiana Zerjal joined Wells and spent a month traveling with the crew, going from village to village and taking blood samples from the locals. When she returned to the West, Tatiana analyzed the DNA samples in her lab. In her research, she'd focused on a very specific component of the human DNA, the Y chromosome. In order to understand the significance of the Y chromosome, let's turn to Ron. Ron, where are you? Shh, not so loud. Why? What's going on? Nothing. I'm in Tatiana's lab. She invited you to her laboratory? That's nice. Yeah, well, she doesn't actually know I'm here. She doesn't? I tried to call, you see, but they don't speak English, and my Italian is all pizzas and spaghettis. Shh, did you hear that? I think that was the guard. You broke into Tatiana's lab? Shh, keep your voice down. It's for science, you know. Plus, I had to go to the bathroom. Anyways, let's talk about what Tatiana was looking for in the DNA samples Wells collected in Central Asia. In the previous episode, we talked about the molecular clock technique, which allows scientists to map evolutionary changes in living creatures by comparing slight mutations in the DNA over long stretches of time. We also learned how Rebecca Kahn used this same technique to prove the existence of a female in Africa some 150,000 years ago, which was the ancestral mother of all living humans today. The key to Kahn's success was using the DNA found in mitochondria in women, since in women, the mitochondrial DNA passes unchanged from one generation to the next. It turns out that men have their own equivalent to mitochondrial DNA, and that is the Y chromosome. In every human cell, except the egg and the sperm cells, there are 46 chromosomes. Each of them is a tightly sealed package of DNA wrapped around itself. The DNA in the chromosomes determines all of our genetic characteristics, while only two specific chromosomes determine our gender, the X chromosome and the Y chromosome. If a fetus has an X chromosome, it will develop into a female, and if it has a Y chromosome, it will develop into a male. During the fertilization process, the fetus receives 23 chromosomes from its mother and 23 from its father. It's a random mix, so you can't really tell which chromosome came from the father and which from the mother. All except the Y chromosome, since this chromosome comes solely from the father. In other words, if Luke Skywalker is a man, and he certainly is, it's because he received a Y chromosome from Darth Vader, his father, who received it from his father, and so on and so on. Since the Y chromosome is passed unchanged from father to son across the generations, it's suitable for use with the molecular clock technique. One can take Y chromosome samples from the DNA of two men and compare the mutations present in each one. If the two men have roughly the same mutations, they are probably closely related to one another. If they have very different mutations, this means their common ancestral father lived farther back in time. In fact, using this knowledge, scientists were able to show that alongside mitochondrial Eve, who was the ancestral mother of all living humans, 
there was also Y-chromosome Adam, who is the ancestral father of all living men. Y-chromosome Adam lived in Africa some 50,000 to 300,000 years ago. As is the case with mitochondrial Eve, this Adam was not our only ancestral father. There were many other men around at his time. Adam was simply lucky in the sense that all of his sons had male sons, who had male sons of their own, and so on, until the present time. Although being a father to two very energetic sons myself, I hesitate to call that luck. And in case you were wondering, no, mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosome Adam did not live together. They might not even have existed in the same time. No, officer, sorry, no, I was just... Ron, is everything okay? Um, the guard just came in. Uh, no, 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 you don't understand. No, mozzarella, cappuccino. Um, uh, you, don't, you don't understand. Well, let's let Ron sort out this mess he got himself into. Back to Tatiana Zerjal and the collected samples from Central Asia. Previous genetic research performed in Europe showed that the European population is made of a relatively high number of dynasties, with relatively little blood relation between those dynasties. Tatiana expected to find the same results from the samples she gathered with Spencer Wells. To her surprise, sample after sample revealed the same mutation structure, the same genetic fingerprint, in all male Y chromosomes. But that was very strange. If these results are correct, then 16 million men living in Central Asia today have a common forefather who lived about a thousand years ago. And that is nearly impossible. An average European man who lived in the Middle Ages has, by now, about 800 living descendants. 16 million men is much, much more than 800. 16 million is roughly 0.5% of the number of men in the whole world. How can one man, even a successful one in reproduction terms, have so many descendants? As Tatiana continued her analysis, the result remained the same. The reoccurring genetic signature forced her to believe that all these men actually share a mystery ancestral father who lived about a thousand years ago. Tatiana took a map and started marking the places where she and Wells collected DNA samples. As she completed the marking, she took a step back and looked at the map. Even though she wasn't much of a historian, she immediately realized what she was looking at. In 1162, in northern Mongolia, a baby named Temujin was born to the tribe of Borjigin. At the time, the Mongolian nation was divided into many tribes who fought constantly with each other, trying to gain control over the living areas in Central Asia. Temujin grew up to be a fearless army leader, the only one who succeeded in uniting all the disputed tribes under his authority. The Mongolian army destroyed every enemy that dared rise against it, forming one of the greatest empires the world had ever seen, from China in the east to Europe in the west. 
Temujin received the title of Genghis Khan, the greatest of rulers or the ruler of the universe. The markings on Tatiana's map perfectly match the borders of the Mongolian kingdom. It is said that one day, Genghis Khan called a Chinese monk to his palace and asked him how he could achieve immortality. The monk told him, you cannot live forever, but you can prolong life by avoiding sexual contact. We can't know if this actually took place or not, but even if it did, apparently Genghis Khan had, how should we put it, other priorities. Historians estimate that the great Khan had 40 official sons, and it was thought that the Mongol soldiers had a standing order to bring the most beautiful women of any conquered city to his harem. A Persian historian from the 13th century estimated that Genghis and his sons had, together, about 20,000 descendants. He also wrote that he feared the following generations would think he was exaggerating. But no one can say for sure if the genetic fingerprint Tatiana identified in the Y chromosomes did belong to the great Khan. Until we locate the Khan's grave, extract a DNA sample from his bones, and compare his Y chromosome to those from the samples, we can only rely on educated guesses. But assuming that Genghis Khan did spread his genetics so generously around Asia, How can it be that a thousand years later, there are still so many men who are carrying his genes? This episode is sponsored by Augury. Augury. Machines talk. We listen. Augury's technology is called predictive maintenance. It's built upon a simple principle. Every mechanical system produces unique sounds and noises. By attaching sensors to machines, Augury software can analyze subtle changes in these sounds and diagnose and predict future malfunctions before they occur. This analysis is done in real time using a smartphone. Augury is growing and looking for great engineers and developers who share their same passion and creativity for smart technologies. Has anyone ever told you that you're the smartest person they know? If so, Augury wants to get to know you. Visit cmpod.net and click Augury's banner to submit your resume for positions in New York or in Haifa, Israel. One option is that the mutation that the Khan gave his descendants is in some way beneficial for them. Therefore, many of them survive the natural selection that thins out those with less fortunate genes. Yet this is clearly not the case here. The mutation structure revealed in the Y chromosome has no unique survival value. Therefore, it is improbable that those who carried it had any real advantage over those who did not. The second option, more probable yet certainly more disturbing, is that where natural selection does not apply, a cultural selection does. Genghis Khan was known as a cruel ruler who never hesitated before destroying whole cities and decapitating their inhabitants, should they dare rebel against him. He was responsible for the death of about 40 million people. Half or more of those were men. This industrial-scale killing, along with many rapes, could have created the current situation where Genghis Khan's genetic inheritance is common in the territories of the Mongol Empire more than any other genetic dynasty. 
he basically wiped out entire populations of men and raped many women, which resulted in even more Khan descendants. Tatiana Zerzhal's research is a prime example of how the data stored in our DNA has the potential to expose interesting facts about our collective past. The question is, do we always want to know? Ron, are you still there? Yes, yes I am, Kelly. I convinced the gentleman from Tatiana's lab to let me go. I can be very persuasive when I want to, you know. The tongue is the power of life and death. I see. How much did you pay him? 20 bucks. Very persuasive. So, Ron, what can you tell us about the Kohanim gene? The Kohanim gene is a very interesting example of how using the Y chromosome to assign someone to a certain ethnic group doesn't always work the way you think it would. According to the Old Testament, when the Israelite who left Egypt built their first holy temple in Jerusalem, the priests in that temple all came from one single family, that of the Kohanim. The Kohanim, which were all men of course, were all descendants of Aaron, who was Moses' brother and played a big role in the story of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. The temple was eventually destroyed, but the Kohanim still play a significant role in today's Judaism. They have some important ceremonial duties in synagogues, and many Jewish men take pride in their Kohanim lineage. Remember Spock's salute in Star Trek, the one where he spreads his fingers into a V-shape? That's actually the traditional Kohanim blessing. Dr. Carl Skorecki was Canadian and Jewish and a Kohen. In the 1990s, he used to pray in a small synagogue in Toronto. As I mentioned earlier, the Kohanim have some ceremonial duties, and at some point the rabbi who led the prayer asked for a Kohen to step up to the central platform. As Dr. Skorecki was rising from his chair, he noticed that another Kohen preceded him and stepped onto the platform first. Skorecki returned to his seat, but as he did so, an interesting thought occurred to him. Initially, in the time of the Old Testament, all Jewish people belonged to the same ethnic group. But some thousand years ago, this group split into two separate populations, the Ashkenazi Jews and the Sephardic Jews. They were all still Jews, of course, but there were some differences in tradition, prayers, etc. The most visible difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews was their skin color. The Ashkenazi who lived in Europe had fair skin, and the Sephardi who lived in Spain and Africa had darker skin. Skorecki was of Ashkenazi descent, so he had fair skin. The other Kohen, the guy who beat him to the platform, was obviously Sephardi. He was short and dark-skinned. Still, they were both Kohanim, that is, both belonged to the same ancient family of priests. Skorecki asked himself whether he and the other man could truly be descendants of the same family in spite of their physical differences. 
Can it be that over time the separation between the Kohanim family and the rest of the Jewish population got somewhat blurred so that some who see themselves as Kohanim are actually regular, non-priestly Jews? Or maybe, God forbid, there never was a distinguished priesthood family and the biblical story is nothing but a myth. A few years later, Dr. Karl Skorecki immigrated to Israel. The troubling question about the Kohanim kept pulling at his curiosity, and when he came across the modern techniques of Y-chromosome analysis, he seized the chance. He joined several geneticists, and together they examined the Y-chromosome of some 160 Jewish Kohanim from around the world. The results of the research were published in 1997 and immediately struck a deep chord with many religious Jews. Dr. Skorecki, by then a professor, discovered that 50-60% to 60% of the Kohanim shared the same genetic fingerprint, and that this fingerprint actually appears in both Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardi Jews. In other words, it is highly likely that many of these men shared the same ancestral father who lived approximately 106 generations ago. Is that ancestral father Aaron, Moses' brother? It's impossible to tell for sure. But if one assumes that the average generation is 30 years, the resulting calculation is 3,180 years ago, which is 1,165 BC. That's not very far, relatively speaking, from when Aaron is supposed to have lived according to the Old Testament, roughly 1,200 to 1,600 BC. Professor Skorecki's research stirred a great excitement among Orthodox Jews all around the world. After all, if genetic testing shows that most of the Kohanim do belong to the same family, and that this family's ancestor lived in Aaron's time, doesn't it prove that all other events described in the Old Testament, from the parting of the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, must be real as well? But let's put dreams aside and reality aside. First, it's obvious that the figure of 30 years per generation is an arbitrary number. If we assume, for example, that each generation is only 25 years, then the ancestral father of Jewish priests lived about 2,600 years ago, which is hundreds of years after Aaron's time. Even more troubling were the results of further investigations done after Skoretsky's initial research. It turns out that the unique genetic fingerprints of the Kohanim family is actually two different fingerprints, or to be exact, two different variations of the same signature. Most of the Kohanim Jews carry a genetic variation named J1, while others carry the version J2. What this means is that some of the Kohanim, roughly 15%, have a common ancestral father which is different from the ancestral father of the other Kohanim group. In other words, there is not one, but two hypothetical Aaron's. Which of the two Aaron's is the real Aaron, if one even existed? 
Finally, it was shown that the unique genetic fingerprint of the Jewish Kohanim is also present in other ethnic groups, groups which have nothing to do, genetically speaking, with the Jewish people, from Yemenites to Kurds to Armenians. The bottom line, then, is that the existence of the unique Kohanim fingerprint in someone's Y chromosome tells us nothing about his being or not being a part of this priestly family. So, ironically, instead of uniting Jewish people under the umbrella of a common tradition, these findings can weaken ancestral bonds and create division among people. After all, where we once had one Kohanim family, we now seem to have two such families. Which of them is the real Holy Family? Do we even want to find out? Even to Professor Skorecki, by the way, it's clear that the results of his research should remain solely in the academic world. Quote, We are not slaves to our genes. Genetics is merely an instrument. My opinion is that it is important to know where you come from, but it is more important to know where you're going to. End quote. Yet, genetic analysis also has the potential to show us how closely related, in the genetic sense, we all are. In 2004, an American mathematician named Joseph Chang published an article where he attempted to answer the following question. When did our closest ancestral parent, man or woman, live? We are not referring to mitochondrial Eve or Y-chromosome Adam. Their lineages pass through very specific lines, from mother to daughter and from father to son. Chang was looking for our closest ancestral parent via any lineage, be it my mother's father's mother or your father's father's mother, and so on. In order to get to the answer, Chang created an abstract mathematic model of the human population. The model assumes that there are no more isolated populations on Earth. That is, there are no isolated tribes that have never had any contact with the outside world. Under that assumption, Chang came to the conclusion that the common ancestral parent to all humanity lived about 2,000 years ago, more or less. Let me say that again. Our ancestral parent, mine, yours, everyone in the whole world, lived only about 2,000 years ago. In historical terms, this is like a blink of the eye. Even under the most severe assumptions of cultural and geographical isolation, Chang's mathematical model predicts that our common ancestral parent may have lived up to 4,000 years ago. On first glance, Chang's result doesn't seem plausible. How can an Inuit in the frozen north share any relatively recent blood relations with a Zulu warrior from Africa? How can a Chinese woman, whose family never left Asia, be a relative to a Native American? The answer lies in the European expansion of the last 500 years. In the last few centuries, the Europeans had sent explorers, settlers, and missionaries to almost all corners of the world. The blood ties that these European explorers created with local populations all over the globe are the ties that unite us today, in genetic terms. 
So what is the meaning of all this? Is the molecular clock technique of using DNA to figure out how we are related good for us? Or is it bad? As is often the case with any new scientific discovery, the molecular clock has no inherent tendency towards one end of the moral spectrum or the other. Its usage is up to us. One could use Y-chromosome analysis to emphasize the differences between ethnic groups of people, divide us into finer and finer sects and groups, which will quarrel and fight amongst ourselves, as groups often do. Alternately, one could use the same idea to emphasize the things that bring us together as humans. After all, we are all related to one another through a not-so-distant ancestral mother or father. In a literal sense, we are all one big family. From this point of view, the differences between us are nothing compared to our similarities. It is all a matter of perspective. That's it for this episode of CMPOD. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this and other episodes, please leave a review about CMPOD on iTunes or share the podcast with your friends. Our website is at cmpod.net, where you'll find all of our past episodes, such as the history of poisons, digital information preservation, and the story of the German U-boats in World War II as told from a relatively unknown angle, that of the technological war between Allied and German engineers. Follow us on Twitter at CuriousMindsPod or subscribe to our mailing list to stay updated on future episodes. Our email address is info at cmpod.net. We're also on Facebook, and our page on Facebook is where you'll also have a chance to crack our weekly science brain teaser from the previous episode, which is still unsolved. And it goes like this. When the Russians launched Sputnik 1 into space, President Eisenhower knew that the same rocket that carried the satellite can also be modified to carry a nuclear warhead. So he asked his advisors, if we know the satellite's speed and height above the ground, can we deduce the satellite's mass? Well, what do you think was their answer? Head over to our Facebook page, the link is in the website, cmpod.net, and post your answer. CMPod is written and produced by me, Ran Levy, co-hosted by Kelia Lachlan and Shoshi Shmulevitz. Nir Sayag is our sound editor, and Danny Timor is our business manager. Thank you for listening. See you again next week. Goodbye. Luckily for him, a perfect opportunity prevent... Ah, prevented. I was nailing that sentence, too. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> In the previous in the pre, in the previous episode then 16 million men living oh my gosh I did it again living in the previous in the ep, in the previous episode common in the territories of the Mongol oh I did it again Mongol Empire <sighs> in the in the previous episode in the previous episode in the previous episode very persuasive indeed <laughs> I don't know if I like the word indeed that's not really a word people say in real life
You know what I mean? It, you know what I mean? It's more of like a written thing. Or maybe that is very... No, I'll just... Okay. All right. <clears throat> 